Welcome to the podcast series, Now I Am Listening. This episode involves topics that are suitable for audience members over the age of 13 and contains subject matter that may be triggering for some listeners. For information about where to find support or help with any of the topics discussed in this episode, you can visit our website at nowimlistening.com. Kia ora and welcome to Now I Am Listening, brought to you in association with adjacentcommunications.com. I'm your host, Andrew Johnson, and with me today is Tamaki Makoto Auckland City Councillor, Angela Dalton. In this episode, we learn more about Angela's inspiring life story in her journey from becoming a young mother living in South Auckland through to having a seat at the table of governance for New Zealand's largest city. We discover how she balances an incredibly busy professional schedule while still maintaining time for the people, places and connections that mean the most. She truly is a bastion of hope in this crazy world of politics, so let's get listening. Angela Dalton, now I am listening. Thank you very much for taking your time out of your day to join me on the episode. Thank you, Andrew. Pleasure. It's, um, it's quite exciting for me to have the chance to sit down and talk with you because I've had the chance to get to know you personally and do some work with you on your project of tobebold.co.nz. And um, just who you are. I think is kind of cool and I really want people to get a chance to, to learn a little bit more about you. So I suppose the first question I have that burns in my mind is how do you do it all that you do? How, how do you manage time? Because it seems like you have the, you're everywhere and available to everybody, whether it's being a mum, a grandmum, a counsellor, involved in all different aspects. How do you manage your time? Well, I, I sort of feel like I was busier when I had young children. And now that my children are adults and have children of their own, I sort of have my time. And so I can choose to spend my time how I spend my time. I perhaps don't spend enough of that time exercising, you know, so it is around the priorities of fitting everything in. But I think what is important is doing things that make your heart sing and it becomes easy and you become, and, you, and you're doing what you really want to do. And uh, so the time is found for those things that I love doing. And is that really how you assess things in terms of someone's coming, hey, I need you to be at this event, or I need you to give me this information, or I need it right now. Is that really how you sort of put some barriers or sort of protect yourself when your time is to say, do you feel it? Because, you know, we've got all these pressures. Everyone's so busy. But to get on top of things and do stuff that, you know, means something to you, that's quite a skill. I prioritise um, local things. So I will get invitations to go to shows and events in, in the city and they look pretty cool and they look pretty exciting but they're usually in the evening and uh, and I don't feel like I need to go even though it would be an opportunity. But a local event um, like I did on a Friday Just Gone or Saturday Just Gone was judging a lantern contest in, in Wurri. And that really spun my wheels. And that, that reminds me of my why, is the community, the people, the young kids. And that's where I want to be. I'd rather be there than at a show. So did you always want to be someone like you are today, a councillor of Auckland City Council? Gosh, you know, when I was younger, I didn't have any aspirations ex except to be a mum. I just wanted to be a mum. And I hadn't thought about furthering my education or any grandiose ideas of being an elected member in a, in a council. But I have always wanted to be connected to community in some way. I think it's, uh, I believe it is in my DNA. My, my grandfather was a, a councillor in Manurewa where I grew up. And mum and dad have always done their bit in community as well. So it was natural. And what are some of the memories you have about growing up in the good old days of Manurewa? My family actually, um, when they, my dad moved up with his parents from Christchurch via Wellington, they settled in Manurewa. And um, so technically I've kind of got family history with, with the area. Um, and so, but what was it like back then um, compared to the, the place that is today and, and some of the good family values that are still there that, that you experienced as a child? Yeah, look, it's changed. And uh, I would say I felt very safe. It was a safe place to grow up. I remember being able to walk up Churchill Avenue to the dairy, crossing Weymouth Road was quite safe, and walking to school uh, and back. Uh, the population was much smaller, 
we knew more about each other and, and people smiled in the street and said hello. And I just feel now it's bigger. There's lots more people. Everyone's busy. And this isn't just Manurewa. This is everywhere. So life has changed over 50 years. Um, I was eight years old when that was happening. So, but what Manurewa does have is a, is a heart. And, and our people are really loyal to each other. And they will go into bat for each other when um, times are tough or even not so tough. So that's what I love about my community. And when you left school, your very first job was at Auckland Airport. Isn't that a bit full circle for you with current activities as a councillor? <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, I love my first job. So I did leave school early. Um, I got school C. Um, I passed three subjects with the, with the scores of 50, 51 and 52, so only just scraped through there. <laughs> Education wasn't my, my thing. Um, and I was a receptionist typist at an organisation or a company called Davies Customs Agency. And I loved it. And I, would, I had a little mini and I would drive the back roads out to the airport because there were no motorways and it was a bit of a rat run to do out there, but I, I loved it. And yes, I worked there until I fell pregnant with my eldest daughter, Melissa. But I met lots of people out there. I learned a lot. The internet didn't exist. Um, computers, not, not really. I just had a typewriter. And so, gosh... Good memories you've just brought back to me. <laughs> yeah, well, see, I'm a bit of an aviation geek myself. So when I was like 11 and 12, I made TV documentaries, little video documentaries for my school assignments, and one of them was on Auckland Airport. So I you know, vividly remember the green and the brown buildings with all those sort of lovely old corridors and stuff like that. Yeah. The Jean Batten statue, I think, is pretty much the only original piece that's out there these days. Mm. And, um, and so you mentioned um, Melissa and... You were a young mum, if you like, a day. Well, probably these days that's considered age when people had children has, has changed and perceptions of all that stuff. But at the time you were 18 and, um, and had Melissa, but you then had to try and find that balance because you went on to get a nighttime job doing data entry, mm. which seems like a really difficult combination of mental skills required to be sleep deprived and a mum and looking at data. Why did you put yourself through that? <laughs> Being with the um, children, because I had four uh, in the end, being with children during the day was important to me. And so I was able to get a job at what was called Data Bank back in the day in Nelson Street. And I worked from four till midnight. And I was younger, so I, I could do it. I couldn't do that now, but uh, I could do it. And yes, I was a young mum and I had Melissa when I was 18. And as I said, I just wanted to be a mum. Um, Melissa came along unexpectedly and uh, unexpected for my mother and father as well. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's a certain amount back in those days, Melissa will be 40 this year, um, that there's a lot of shame connected with a out-of-wedlock pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And I carried that for quite a long time. I had a really supportive family. But even though I did have a very supportive family, there's still a sense of shame. And it, it really affects your confidence. And you feel like everybody's staring at you, even after you've had that child and the child is growing up. So it's probably something that is internal and people aren't even giving it a second thought. But it is, it is a shame that uh, can affect decisions that you make in your confidence as you go through life. Did it affect you when you went to work with Avis in terms of taking... I suppose, a corporate role, you might call it, in terms of that kind of business in an office and people saying, oh, you know, how are your kids? You've got kids. How's your husband? How's the fact? Like, did you have to deal with those kind of conversations at the time? I didn't hit Avis. No, Avis um, was really a surprise for me. Again, I just started part-time and it was a friend that um, helped me get, get that job. She knew they were looking for a part-time data entry. And uh, it worked in well. So that was when I started back at working during the day because Laura, my youngest, was, I think she was three, so she did go into a daycare across the road from our house in Weymouth 
and so I um, yeah worked during the day because the others were the other children were at, at school then. So I felt I needed to be at home in the afternoons and the evenings. But the people at Avis were really, really supportive. I had a manager there who was hugely supportive because as a woman um, with children, you know, you tend to be the one that is caring for the children when they're sick and having to take time off and all of these other things that happen. And uh, she was fantastic in that respect. Avis uh, provided me with the opportunity to continue to grow and I just put my hand up for different things that were coming along and eventually over the years I did end up on the executive management team with my flash car and a bonus and everything was good (laughs) and managing people so at one point uh, at the end I think I was managing about 40 40 people and it was amazing you certainly learn a lot about different people, different needs, um, and making sure that their work place is a place where they want to be and they feel comfortable and, and safe because you spend most of your time, feels like it, at work with other people. And how did you, it through because it was almost 16 years I think you were with Avis, mm. and how did your abilities or how did you shape your abilities to connect with people in that environment where you were managing other people and and dealing with their own lives and their own issues and still saying, well, we have a job to do, but you're a human. How do you how did you find that balance? Because you obviously hadn't, didn't have formal training. It was sort of on the job as you mm. go, I, I expect. So how did you learn those skills? It is just through experience. Empathy has a lot to do with it. Being able to place yourself in other people's shoes or understanding the people and and their needs. So investing in your time and understanding, is this person married? Does this this person have children? Um, What else do we need to know about this person to make sure that they feel that they can come to me at any time and, and be safe in that? And so... I met some wonderful people at Avis. Lots of challenges, lots of English as a second language because I was managing, again, database and customer service and in the end the credit department as well. And customer service, it's a hard job and it's not a well-paid job compared to other jobs around and you you can get treated pretty badly by customers and so... It was important to have that extra wraparound care, caring environment for the people that work there. Do you think being a mum helped with that nurturing aspect of management for you? Yeah, I think so. I think it did. Yes, absolutely. And I think that that does come naturally to most women, even if they're not mothers. I think that there is a, a different role that women take in managing people. Um, which is just a natural occurrence. It's a maternal instinct. Um, not everyone, not, um, I mean, I've had some wonderful men that I've worked with and still do, but there is a, there's an absolute difference just by the, the makeup of us as individuals and as genders. You and I have talked about this in previous conversations around um, women in business and men in business and the different perceptions of taking on certain roles and responsibilities in the way that we, men and women are possibly asked to act differently or forced to act differently, but perhaps. When you were growing up from the lower level to the executive level, did you ever any, feel any pressure as a mum who might be in a senior position who needs to take care of a sick kid, like you said, that anybody ever put any pressure on you to to man up, if you like, or be more like a man, a manager, as opposed to you, who's more on that nurturing side? Never. I never had that at Avis. There was, on the exec team, there were more men than women, uh, but they were very supportive. They were good men and respect for each other. And Avis had really strong values as well, you know, respect for the individual and... Um, and they lived to that, they worked to that. So, no, I didn't feel any of that when I was with Avis. And you talked about, um, you know, wanting to understand people and their mm. lives and so forth. And you um, had had huge success in terms of what you were achieving with Avis. And then in your own life, you had some things that sort of came about that weren't so positive and weren't so 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 nice. And um, that 
that sort of maybe gave you a bit of a shake in your life. And how mm. did some of those things in your life, whether you want to share exactly what they were, but some things that, that had come along that, you know, pre- presented life in a different way? Yeah. In 2006, I was still working at Avis, and my father, who had lived with us for a number of years, actually, um, he was living with us when our youngest daughter was born, so um, he was Laura's best friend. They went everywhere together, and he he had been suffering from depression for a long time, and in 2006, my eldest daughter, Melissa, was expecting her first baby. And she had moved in with us and she, because her and her partner were not together at that particular time. And uh, I think Dad felt that he was a burden to us, you know. He knew that we had Melissa coming with um, a new baby and um, we had three other children and I just think that he thought that it was too hard. It was too hard for Dad anyway wasn't too hard for us and dad ended up committing suicide and I believe I truly believe he did that so he wasn't a burden it's it's sad it's it's just really sad I'd never felt I felt like I knew why he did what he did Mm -hmm. and it was out about out of care and love for for me Mm. and my family well for me I would say (laughs) um so when something like that happens, it does, it does make you pause and it makes you reflect on what's important in life. I was at Avis. I was working for an American-owned organisation. I was working long hours. Sure, I had a car and, and um, I was being well paid and that all of a sudden meant nothing. It, it meant nothing. And then it was making me reflect on why am I doing this? Why am I working such long hours to make people in America rich? This doesn't seem quite right to me. It doesn't fit. So I decided that I would leave Avis at that point and um, look for something else to do. Around that time, I did get quite... um, Oh, I don't know if I got depressed. I certainly went to the doctor and I got an antidepressant, which didn't help. Um, so I went to counselling. I went to see, a, I think, a cognitive behavioural specialist. Mm-hmm. That helped. Mm. It really helped because it takes you right back to when you were a child and it, it helps to try and put some things in order, maybe answer some questions because I hadn't finished school, I was sort of guessing my way through life and not hoping I got it right, but thinking that sounds right. I, I rely a lot on my instinct. <laughs> well, it's done pretty well, so yes. But in terms of having some some structure and some ways of thinking, that was a useful process. It was helpful. Yes, it was helpful. Also, I was drinking too much. So I was drinking wine and I thought this isn't working well. And my um, the, the person that I was seeing, um, the behaviour specialist, she really wanted to work on uh, what was driving the drinking and not address the drinking at all because we need to, you know, sort out those underlying problems. But I was still worried, so I contacted CADS and I went to meet somebody there and said, I think I'm drinking too much. So I did a survey and he said, well you're pretty close, this is not going to end well if you keep doing it. So I went to CADS. I loved it. I went there for six weeks, I think the course was, and I met some incredible women. They were all women in the course I was in. And you've got to be pretty mindful to remember why you go in the first place because I'm sitting along women that had some pretty serious problems with drugs not just alcohol, but drugs. And I started to feel like a bit of a fraud with my bottle of wine. <laughs> you know, that yep. was, yep. maybe a bottle of wine isn't so bad. <laughs> yeah, right, self-justifying. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I, um, I'm really glad I went on that journey. And that was an eye-opener as well. Because I feel like, I felt like I'd lived in quite an insular world from being a mum from 18. You, you just get stuck into being a mum. Um, and having four children and the rest of the world is going on without you because it's quite a 
there's about 20 years of your life that, that are stuck in that space and then you come out the other side of that and you think, well, what's happened? <laughs> yeah. And for those people who don't know, CADS is the Crisis Alcohol and Drug Service. Yeah. And uh, you talk about the uh, group um, mentality where they you, you share in a group um, mm. what's going on so you get to maybe go through different lessons or different weeks and diff- review different things. And one of the key drivers they have around aligning your goals and your values and giving you a bit of a construct to say, okay, if I'm presented with a certain situation, how do I say, does this a yes or a no for me because does it match my... So it gives you some sort of some rules to play with so that mm. you've got them in your back pocket. Um, and I think some people feel that that means they're a failure if they don't understand what actually is quite simple things. But having that process and what CADs do seems to be very um, powerful in its simplicity when you simply apply it. And I think there's a lot of people that would benefit from sort of um, taking a bit of a look at how some people do self-medicate with alcohol, which is everywhere in our society. If you step back and look at it, it's everywhere and it's in our societal behaviours and we're expected. And certainly um, when you say to someone, I don't drink, it sends shockwaves through people's dinner tables or <laughs> hanging out or it's like, well, it's okay, you can actually have a nice time. I can drink a non-alcoholic beer or I can have a, a non-alcoholic thing. Yeah. But as you say, um, for most people, there is some underlying stuff and it's actually not about the alcohol or about the drug. It's about what is the trauma or what is the processes of things within your subconscious that you haven't dealt with. So do you look back at that period of time now positively from such a negative experience? Yeah, I do. I really do. And it makes uh, sense. You know, you learn so many lessons along the way. If we can remember those lessons that we've learned along the way, um, you know, it it builds up this package of resilience and being able to provide advice to others. You know, what I have learned helps me with Melissa now um, at 40 and going through things that I went through. I can provide some context into how long life might be if we're lucky and how important this little moment in time is or isn't um, and to, you know, don't don't give up hope. Um, And, yeah, there's tools of the trade, isn't there, that we pick up along the way. (laughs) Yeah, and it's it's quite fascinating that you've decided to now take that learning – and not go back into a corporate environment at that stage of your life, you you chose to move towards public service. And was there a definitive moment in time that you said, yep, this is what I'm going to go and do, or a, a, an experience or an opportunity that came up that led you into the, the pathway that you followed today? Yeah, I had a friend who was on what was called a community board, and I was always quite curious as to what that was and what she did. I had previously been on boards of trustees, and helped out at the football club and netball club and the play centre. So I'd sort of been involved in in that space and and I enjoyed it, I liked it. And then I was curious about what the community board did. So in 2006, after Dad died in the March, I met someone in the December who was looking to put together a political ticket to compete in the next election, which was in 2007, and that was my opportunity. And I took that opportunity and I won that, uh, my election and in 2007 and sort of haven't looked back really. (laughs) Now, I have to ask you there in the sense of how do you make that transition where suddenly you're trying to get people to vote for you? That's a, most of us don't have that opportunity to have to have our face on billboards yeah. or to hand out stickers and badges and all that kind of stuff. Was it a weird, did you have to get over that feeling? Was it weird to do that for the first time? Yeah, it was. And, and it still is to a certain extent. Like I, I don't like door knocking. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like intruding on people's privacy. Yet people, people that door knock say, no, people like people door knocking. And I just can't quite get there. And you really do have to put yourself out there. It is difficult. And it was easier for me because I had a team of people with me. And some of them are are extroverts. And that made it easier as well. So I was along for the ride. I worked as hard as I could in the election campaign and uh, did knock on some doors and always felt awkward. (laughs) You then actually went on to be 
what's referred to as the town manager. Yeah. So I don't think I've heard of a town manager term being used to describe someone's role in a community. So what was a town manager? <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed that job too. That was a part-time job at uh, Manurewa. So most uh, – there's a lot of what they call BIDS, business improvement districts throughout Auckland. And the businesses within are charged a targeted rate – which goes through to council to pass back through to the town centre. So this was called the Business Association. So the money was passed back there. And then the town centre manager's job is to just make uh, events happen for Brent to bring community into the town centre to make sure that businesses have the opportunity to participate in training, whether it's first aid training or business training. Um, they're a conduit to being able to connect to council, to Auckland Transport. And um, I enjoyed that job. I enjoyed that job because it was in my town centre where I grew up. And I wanted to see some change. And we hadn't had change. Things were stagnating. And there's two things that might sound really little but were important to me. One was to get flags on the lamppost because why shouldn't we have flags on our lampposts? Every other town centre does. Yeah and to bring back the Christmas parade. And those were really important things for me. So alongside of all of the other stuff that I did there, which I enjoyed, I wanted to bring a sense of pride, a sense of we can have as much as any other town centre and don't write us off because all it takes is somebody with a bit of energy and belief and ambition to make us as good as we want to be as a town. And so from going essentially from being a private citizen um, and, as you say, kind of almost relatively intimate in terms of where you started as a mum and being focused on the family and, and your, your job and you were doing with Avis, et cetera, and then now you've, you've crossed that line into being a public figure and being uh, in a, sitting around the table where you have influence over um, the lives of other people that you may or may not actually even know um, and using other people's money. So was there anything that surprised you when you first stepped over that line that you'd seen from the outside, but once you were on the other side of the line, sort of wasn't, wasn't what you thought it would be or, or perhaps was more than what you thought it would be? What, what was that like the first time you sort of realised you had moved over that line? I think it's the lack of ability to get things done efficiently. <laughs> <laughs> the bureaucracy in a council is just horrendous. And the legislation that we are governed by, um, we have to go through so many hoops to make things happen. And I think that that needs to be eased. So there's a bit more empowerment. Whilst we need to be accountable for the ratepayers' money that we are putting towards whatever projects there are, there's certainly a lot of consultation that goes on. And so I think we need to do something in that space because it's actually costing a lot of money in the bureaucracy and that's there's, there's no point in this. Um, if you can't get anything achieved in the three years that you were elected because it's been held up in bureaucracy and or politics, it can be very frustrating. I mostly enjoyed my role on the local board because I felt that I had more uh, direct influence over delivering things like playgrounds, playgrounds that would make people happy, families happy, um, events that we would do in the parks to bring community together. And those things I could influence quite easily. At council, now as a councillor, it's dreadfully, dreadfully hard. And it also comes down to political leadership as well. So when my values are not aligning with the majority values, I begin to question the relevance of being there and also a concern if I see the city heading in a direction that is not aligned to what we have agreed to as a city in terms of the future for Auckland. So that's, that's challenging. And back in those days, I should say, like years ago, it wasn't that long ago, <laughs> but back in those days it was before the super city. Mm -hmm. So, um, and 
you you had a, a, a really strong focus on the fact that the, the council you were connected with and involved was really local even back then to the sense of just that south, southern part of Auckland. So what was it like when that transitioned for you? Were you excited when the proposition was there or what were your initial feelings when you heard about the concept of a super city? I didn't know what it meant because <laughs> I'm not I'm – not, very politically, I, I was never involved in politics, and I'll never forget when I was about 16, I think, or maybe 15, I was driving up the drive with Dad, and um, I, something was on the radio in the car, and I said, I don't understand this politics. And he said, and you don't want to, they're all pricks. <laughs> <laughs> so we never talked about politics at home. It was just not on my radar right. uh, as to how important um, politics is uh, mm. to be involved in for people, everybody, to understand who is making the decisions for us either at a central government level or a local government level. Um, so, yes, I I didn't really understand what the super city was, but I went along for the ride. Right. But what happened is that I was appointed deputy chair in 2010 and then the chair of the local board in 2012, and then I really got to understand what a difference can be made here. And if I can get the priorities right by talking with my people in my, com in my community then I can absolutely have some influence of what happens. So you have the other, at that point, the other level is around policy that's being developed by the councillors through Auckland Council. We could provide our feedback as a local board. 21 local boards, it's pretty challenging to get um, a piece of feedback that is not aligned to everyone else's <laughs> through. But at least you felt like you were able to have your say and really advocate for your community. And I would always go and speak at those council meetings, always, and, and present my community's views. Do you think, in terms of what you just said there about with your dad in the car, how would you think 15-year-olds would look at politicians and politics today? Do you think anything's changed for the better or the worse? Yeah, well, gosh, we've got some amazing young people out there who are so informed... I, I have so much hope for the future and I wish that we could get younger people elected. So I'm really supportive of lowering the voting age. Um, I love talking to younger people because they just have views that I, am, I wouldn't even think about. And this is the importance for politicians like me, who are nearly 60, is to stop making decisions for ourselves and what we want but listen to the future generation because we're decision-making for them. So younger people, as an example, are really wanting to get onto public transport. They do want to ride or scooter or whatever it is. They want this freedom to be able to do that. They want apartment living. They absolutely want us to address climate change and to do more for our environment. Now, I'm sitting alongside people that might not believe in climate change. Yeah who want the house on the quarter acre section, who don't want more buses, they want cars and they want more car parks. Yep. Yet this is not what the younger people are telling us. So I find that quite challenging, but easy to be able to sit around the table because I have a couple of younger, younger councillors there who are in that space of planning for the future, for a different future, for our yep. future generation. So I've enjoyed that part of... Yeah, getting alongside them and changing my views entirely. Yeah. Yeah, I've really had to, I've had to make a real conscious shift in my thinking towards traditional, from traditional to new. And I love it. Well, I would come to expect that from from you. Um, unfortunately, you're not surrounded by everybody who doesn't think about so much of the perception of getting change that can be seen today as opposed mm. to possibly changes or evolutions that need to happen to secure the future, which may be 20, 30, 40 years from now. Um, and you touched on that in terms of listening. I feel from my perspective that from an Auckland Council point of view, when I look at uh, council meetings, for example, that they're structured to give councillors a chance to talk. There's not a lot of chance to, to listen. And even if people do get a chance to come and present to you guys as a group, to get to the point where you are a person 
to present to you guys as opposed to myself or somebody else. It's just such a disconnect. So how do you try and make sure that you can have a chance to listen to the people that, that you're trying to represent? It is about meeting with those people outside of those council meetings and making the effort to do that. So if somebody comes and presents to us at council and they're given 10 minutes to talk and five minutes for questions, um, and I find there's something more that I need to know about or if I'm, compl- if I'm compelled to what they're saying and I need more information, I'll, I will meet with them outside of that council meeting. <clears throat> it's the best way to get information is to talk to people outside of that environment. So people do, um, I was in a, a, listening to people on Friday around the future development strategy and one person said, I've got 50 years of development experience that I've got to try and put into 10 minutes to try and get my point across to you on something that is very important for the future of Auckland. And it was a really valid point. And so it's, uh, it, it, that, that sort of stuff would take time, but it's really important. So do you think by removing some of that bureaucracy, which takes up a lot of everyone's time, you'd have more time to listen? We need to do things differently. So we're working in a very structured environment. We all sit around the table. Um, people sit in front of us like we're their, we're their masters and they're the servants. Mm. <laughs> it's a terrible environment. And I feel quite strongly about that in terms of how we partner with mana whenua. And we can listen to, we have the hearings for the annual plan and the same thing happens. Mana whenua come and sit in front of us like they're reporting to the principal and it's mm. awful. We're partners. We're, yeah. we're partners, and this is not the environment that we have. So, I would like to see it all changed. How we how we work? Because it's an interesting thing when most of us don't spend our days thinking about council, and you know yeah. we we do can think about the things we want to complain to council about. <laughs> Where, where's our rates going, and what are they doing with them? But um, you know, you don't think about well, what qualifications does a councillor actually have to have or what, what makes a good councillor? I mean, you even went on to do study in law and get your law degree. So, I mean, you've got a myriad of things. So if, I, if someone was to put you up and I'd look at what you do, I'd think, yeah, she'd make a great councillor. Whereas not talking about anybody in particular, but there seems to be some people that don't have the skills, uh, the, the, the guidelines of skills to have that much power that they it's not just a personal subjective decision around their personality and their likes and dislikes. Yes, well, what we have are people being elected because they're popular and they say the right thing in in their campaigns. So there's a lot of populist politics, which means they'll look at the voting demographic, they'll see that most people that vote are probably 40 upwards years old. They're probably mostly European and they probably have these sorts of values. And so they will pitch to that. So you get a populist vote and you get people being elected because of what they've said, not because they're good at what they do. Um, some people that are elected because they are very, um, very good at their, at their job is representing their communities. And But the voter turnout is so, so very low for local government. Mm. Um, if everybody voted, would get a very different result. I believe we would get a very different result. Do you think that um, focus on reducing down to well, who's voting now is just ultimately just going to reduce, 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 as opposed to if they looked at, well, who's our population and who should I try and reach out to and talk to and who's got no voice, actually, who's not being listened to? Wouldn't that be a wonderful world if we could expand the people and they could actually see themselves in the council? At the moment, I don't think people see themselves in the council. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And I don't know how many of the politicians would go to speak to um, those people because they know they won't vote. As an example, you could... I I did door knock down in Clendon. Um, I know people in Clendon uh, have a really... probably one of the lowest voting turnouts, but it was important. It was important to go there. And... 
Others will focus on the high voting areas, so you will have a look at where the voter turnout was last time and you will know that Wattle Downs have high votes, the Gardens have high votes, Hill Park, and they will target those areas. And that's a strategy, and I guess that's a clever strategy if you want to get elected. But how do we get the voice of uh, all people that are affected by the decisions we make? And that must have a role and effect to what you're saying about young people wanting to get into politics. Mm. Um, you know, uh, my star sign says that I should be a politician, along with all the other things I kind of do. So I do believe my star sign being a Pisces, monkey's Pisces, that should be, uh, you know. One of them always comes up as a politician. And I've always <laughs> said to myself and other people, not in a million years, not that I wouldn't love a platform and hopefully what I'm doing with my business in this podcast, for example, is a, is a platform to some degree. Yeah. But I wouldn't want to work with those people. And I just don't know how you do it. And that's what fascinates me about you because you're a person who said I, you weren't someone who want to go and do your own billboards and door knocking because it wasn't your thing. Luckily, you had a team that got you there in your first local council as opposed to the, the cool kids in the high school who can get all the votes but are bloody useless at running the school's prefects. I just, you know, it's so counterintuitive <laughs> to wanting to have faith, which is why I do have faith because of you, um, that some people in power actually have, you know, know what they're doing and authentically want to represent the, the people they're set there to do, you know. Because um, I do find it funny, like you say, I would feel intimidated um, going if I was ever asked to go and stand in front of council watching some of your live casts. It's it's not a conducive environment for collaboration, it doesn't appear. But there's hopefully hope for the future if we can bring some new thinking and new thoughts into that. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I would be all for for seeing some some of those changes come through, through council um, from the rates that I pay as a younger person, I suppose, a mid, middle-aged person now, I suppose. Um <laughs> But also one of the key things I think I find interesting about you is some of the stuff that we worked on with your tobebold.co.nz website. And that was around um, the issues or the challenges or the opportunities for change around where women are holding different positions and different perspectives around governance and the things that you've done in relation to charity work or community boards and all those different aspects. And there isn't, doesn't seem to be a, a strong platform within politics to empower women. And we had a fantastic woman prime minister, regardless of what people believe, left, right or whatever yep. about politics. Um, in terms of as a young woman, she's my age, so, you know, um, she, she led the country and, and, and did, uh, did the job that she did. But um, it was unique and we were sort of on the worldwide stage as having this young female prime minister. So what would be your vision or your hope for being able to change that sex balance between that very masculine, misogynistic, it's just a given that that's the way the world is. It's still, after all this discussion around these topics, still very much there. What do you think is ever going to make it change? Oh, it's uh, leadership, definitely. And see, we see this at the moment, and we've gone, we've gone backwards. So... I was a councillor under Phil Goff, who I found to be, regardless of the politics, I don't belong to a political party, but I found him to be very respectful and very conscious of making sure there was equal representation um, in all of the work that we do. So I got appointed to a few working parties under Phil Goff, which was really enjoyable because that's where I could speak up for my community rather than just sit in maybe an opposition place, which is not helpful at all. But I was just reflecting the other day about what we have now. And to answer your question, we need to have the right people elected. And that starts with the mayor, because the mayor holds the power to appoint uh, chairs and deputies and members to committees. So he decides the committee structure, and then he does an app his appointments. So we have... The mayor, he has policy advisors, and at the moment he has seven men doing that. And then we have the committees that have been appointed. There's eight committees, and all of the chairs of committees, bar one, is a man, and I think there are four deputies of those committees. And then it's starting to affect our council-controlled organisations. So through the Appointments and Performance Committee, where the chair and the deputy are both men and capable, absolutely capable of doing the job. But I see an emerging trend 
where all of the board appointments to Auckland Transport have been men. So now we have the Board of Auckland Transport with only one woman who's retiring in a couple of months because she didn't get reappointed. And we also have two Auckland councillors that are appointed to the Board of Auckland Transport and they are both men. And so when any other working party is selected and there was one for a transport project, the people sitting on that chosen were the chairs of the committees and um, one deputy chair, which is a woman. But now we've got a, a committee deciding the future of public transport for Auckland. I think that's the right committee. It is a transport committee. Who are all men, uh, uh, bar one woman. And we also now have a, a committee that is going to appoint the CEO of Auckland Transport, which is a really important role. Yep. Then that <laughs> committee uh, are all men. There's no woman on it. Now, public transport, transport in general, is really critical for women who have different needs at times, but they definitely have safety concerns around transport, and only a woman can articulate that. So I can tell the male councillors what I think is a woman, but actually a woman should be articulating that. So I'm seeing this trend of women's voice getting even more and more marginalised on this council, and that's not okay. And I have always believed that people should be appointed for their skill and ability, not their gender, but we should be doing a better job of making sure we're getting more women applying so they can make the shortlist. So I guess what they're saying is that not enough women are making the shortlist for whatever reason. And I would like to assume that that's because we're not getting enough applicants rather than we're creating a boys club. And it does tend to make you think, well, are you encar- is, there, is there any encouragement to, I'd be thinking, well, why should I? It doesn't seem that you're putting an an opportunity for women to want to put their hand up or put their hand under the fire almost to say, well, why do I bother? And it's just such a sad state of affairs to think that as opposed to encouraging. And why do you think it is still so scary that it's just the way of life, that men and women are different Hmm. and both have good, great qualities in terms of their perspectives? So 50% is, is good to have representation for both. Why is it so scary to say that, yes, women will consider public transport differently to men? That's that's a given because... That's just the way the world works and why we don't address it so openly and it's all, and I agree with you in terms of people being, you know, giving their positions and earning their positions based on their skills and qualities to do the role. But at the same time, when it is so skewed the other way, there's got to be some fair balance in the way that that's approached. Yep, I agree with you. And from my examples, it's uh, probably, uh, look, I did raise this when they uh, were putting together the committee for the transport thing. And I said, if, if the process is that you are always going to appoint the chairs of committees, then the odds are the, these decision makers are always going to be men. So how do we get a woman's voice on there? And the, I got scoffed at by a few councillors, so male councillors, <laughs> when the women are in the majority this term. And by look, by far and away, I have a lot of good male colleagues in there. But, um, yeah, some of them are, are still back in the, the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> See, it's interesting that you say that you, you have some good male colleagues because it's it's almost not even like a comp- it's competition or better than worse. It's just that, hey, guys, it's a reality that there's no women in this environment and yeah. that cannot be a good thing. Any you know, so it's it's not like it's a, oh we've got to replace a man with a woman. It's like, but you can see that there need there needs to be a balanced opinion on how this affects society as a whole. And we have men and women in our society, so it just seems natural that that should be the way that it goes. And a good example of what what a difference a woman might make is the first councillor that was elected to Christchurch Council years and years and years ago. She got delivered public toilets with a changing table in them on on Cathedral Square. Now, it wasn't that the men didn't support it. They completely supported it. They just didn't think of it. (laughs) And so women will think of things 
that men won't think of and men will think of things that women won't think of. Exactly. But we've both got to be at the table to be able to have that discussion. Absolutely right. It's a great example because it is. It's not to say that one's better than the worst. It's just we think differently and sometimes you go, oh, didn't think of that, you know, and it's great to have that perspective. Do you think that now as – because you've got – grandkids, I think every time I talk to you, we're looking at the website, I'm updating with another name, another name. So you've got seven, seven, seven. seven now. Yeah. So how does that change your perspective going from a mum, being you and then being a mum and then now being a grandmother and looking at the state of the world, the state of Auckland City, what you, you know, where you're at a position of power and in, in the sense of what you can do. Does it change things when you now have this other really, you know, really young generation that you're thinking, gosh, what would it be like when they're 60? You know, that's that's 50 years away now sort of thing. And does it change your perspective on that long-term planning in, in, that we talked about before? Yeah, it does. And I really want to make sure that we are investing more of the money that we have to invest into a, a lot around climate. So that means more public transport. That means making sure that we are treating the environment well. I mean, I've really had to make that shift in my own mind as well, because I was just trucking along there thinking my life's my life's okay, so, you know, what's the problem? And now just being around the table and listening to some of the younger councillors and, and, and my role listening to younger people and watching what's going on in the world, um, yes, I do worry about what the future's going to look like for our grandchildren. And so I want to make sure that the, the transport budget is a pretty good example because it's the biggest budget that we have. But there are councillors who want to continue building roads and building more roads is not going to achieve anything. So we need to make some courageous and unpopular decisions and that's where it becomes unstuck because politicians do not like to make unpopular decisions, particularly if we're coming into an election year, then you'll see less and less and less get achieved. Mm. So what we should be doing is taking these, this transport budget and making sure more is invested into um, public transport, electric cars, electric buses, all of those things that are going to make a difference. That's our responsibility to do that as a council, is to lead on that and for every other business around to do the same thing. So we can see, well, I can see that there are businesses absolutely making change and as council we're, we're dragging the chain. We're not doing enough. We, we, have, we can and it's down to political decision-making. Yeah. I ask you that point about being a grandmother and a mother in terms of that forward thinking and future thinking and not being absolutely obsessed with the now and the popular vote and so forth. And if I could be as bold to make a statement, do you think that women by nature tend to think of others first, whereas men perhaps by nature think of themselves first? I think that women do just have that maternal instinct and also always women are probably always thinking ahead because they're always planning ahead. And I, because they have had children to to plan for, and um, I, I can't speak for, for women that don't have, tran- uh, don't have children in, in that respect. But I, I think that, I think men care and they care, they care deeply, but their priorities are different. Like you said before, we're, we're just, we're different. We think differently, we act differently. Women are always uh, trying to make sure that there are plans for the future in whatever regard that is, even if it's from getting out the door in the morning to what's going to be for dinner that evening and everything that happens in the middle. Now you, we just talked about some of the challenges, I suppose, of the environment that you're working with and the personalities and the people and the the bureaucracy. Um, but you, you have some keywords which are kind, empathetic, pragmatic, curious. How do you manifest those every day when a lot of what's around you would almost want to sort of diminish those or, or take those words away from you? Why are those words important words for you? Well, I feel them, if that makes sense to you. But I just, I feel them. And that's who I want to be. I want to, I want to be those words. <laughs> yeah. um, look, I get a lot of enjoyment out of working with the council officers. Council officers 
work for council because they care. Uh, they don't want to be a politician, that's all, but they do want to make a difference for Auckland. And so they're constantly battling to try and get change through the politicians. So speaking with them and, and um, getting their energy and the information, that's really helpful, and trying to push you know, things onto an agenda just to achieve an outcome that would benefit all Aucklanders from seeking the information that is required rather than making a decision because of the political nature of it. So, yeah, the council officers are of enormous value. There's some really good people working in there. And with the amount of time and pressure, and sort of coming back to one of the first questions I asked you about how do you get so much done and how do you prioritise your time, what do you do? There'd be lots of people like you who are very busy, high-pressure environments, um, lots of demands on their their thoughts, their um, their activities, and things like that. What do you do? And with those words being so important to you, and you having to, you know making you feel those words, what do you do to top up your tank to to counter all of that pressure of public and the life of the council and the people you work with? What do you do to balance your life up? I do get a lot of joy out of the video calls with <laughs> my grandchildren. So um, Willow, who is 18 months old, usually you know we usually have a Facebook video call each night, and it just it is grounding. Um, well, we don't talk because she can't talk yet. But um, but and, and Sammy, who's who's three, um, yeah, there's that that joy in there, and that helps me. But coming home. And, you know, talking with Grant about the day, if I feel like it, like if I've been in town all day, sometimes I won't want to talk about it till the next day yeah. because it is, it is draining. Sometimes you just got to sit there and think, what the, <laughs> what just happened there? <laughs> um, so those are the things. Where I'm finding that I'm spending, of course, because I've got grandchildren now, more time um, going out to brunch with my children and the grandchildren on the weekend, whereas I wouldn't have done that before. I would have been going to more community events, but I'm finding that I'm prioritising um, spending time with family more than going to everything that's on in the community. Oh, that's awesome. Mm. Now, I would like you to be a councillor for the next 30 years. Oh, my gosh. Because, as I say, you're, you're a bastion of hope, a beacon of light in, in this maddening <laughs> world. Um, but for you, beyond being at what you're doing now, what do you have any dreams or aspirations of things that you haven't done that you think, oh, I'm going to get in, into that one day? I've, had a, I've been pondering on this recently because the environment has changed at council, and I do need to reflect as to whether that's where I want to put the time that I have. Um, I'm really interested in governance still, but I've also been sort of wondering about doing a, a maybe a coaching course. Um, I don't know what coaching courses are out there, but I wonder if there's a way that I can help other women um, in, in some way. Um, if I didn't have to work, if, you know, if I had millions of dollars in the bank, then I, I would just go and volunteer all over the place and pick and choose what I wanted to do. So I am still looking for something where I can give to women in the most part because that's what I know. I know about being a woman. <laughs> and as also as you get older, you also, you know, you get to the point where you can really put time into perspective and and give some advice on the to just stop rushing, you just stop rushing and take that time and look after yourself right now because your your life and the enjoyment of your life will be much longer if you do that. Then I know what it's been to like to be in that space and it's, um, it's crazy in there, it's chaos and it doesn't have to be. So I'm sort of pondering around those those sort of things as to what my next is which I will need to make a decision on in about a year. <laughs> <laughs> and for those people who want to know more about you, you've got the website I talked about, which is two, the number two, mm -hmm. tobebold.co.nz. So what's that website about in terms of what people can find out about you when they visit the site? Yeah, look, I did, what I wanted it for was just to get my name out there as a brand. So partly w we developed it for the election. So it's got some little podcasts on there about um, my day at council, which 
could be entertaining. Angela's <laughs> angle, yes. Yeah. They were always a fascinating insight into what was going on that week. Yeah, I haven't been doing them recently because I thought that could go downhill really quickly <laughs> with the, the, day, the annual plan process. Um, but, yeah, just to get to know a bit about me, so I'll be looking to... Um, perhaps put a bit more information on the on the on the website, depending on where I'm going to go in my career next. Excellent. Well, as I say, um, yeah, I admire a lot of what you do and how you do it. I think it's um, you know we'd be a better place if we had more people like you in the world. Thank you, Andrew. Um, and so it's been my absolute pleasure to be able to have you on the Now I'm Listening episode with us today and um, look forward to see what the next chapter is and um, perhaps another episode we can touch base and see see what you're getting up to. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Now I Am Listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and discovered a little bit more about how we all see the world and why. Visit nowiamlistening.com for more information about Angela, her current work with tobebold.co.nz and future endeavours. Thanks to our production partner Evoke Audio. Check out adjacentcommunications.com for all your strategic marketing and content production needs. Turn your thinking into reality today. You can also hear our other episodes from this series by visiting nowiamlistening.com. As always, thanks for listening.